Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, Sean Ziganfuse here from the DLD project. Welcome to this episode on report writing with Harmony Turnbull, speech pathologist and researcher. Today we're discussing what makes a report truly accessible, and more specifically, what we can do to make reports more likely to be understood and used. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm really excited to welcome the wonderful Harmony Turnbull, who I've known for quite a few years now. Harmony, I might get you to introduce yourself and tell us about your connection to developmental language disorder. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Sean. I think we knew each other for a lot longer through Twitter. Yes, um, true. Before we actually met in person. That was very mm-hmm. exciting when we actually met in person. Um, but thanks for having me. And um, as a bit of background, I've, I'm a speech and language pathologist um, and I have been for over 20 years now. Um, my clinical background is working with people with lifelong disability, so predominantly intellectual disability. Um, and I've worked with people across the lifespan, so from very young children through to adults um, and recently have my journey has brought me towards more and more towards working with people with a variety of communication disabilities one of which is DLD um, as part of working in school settings in Tasmania and uh, over that time my my clinical career I guess I've developed a, an interest in the way we write about our clients, in particular writing in formal report writing um, settings and um, how we, who we're writing for, the way we write those reports. And that's particularly important for anyone, you know, with with any kind of disability or or difficulty, um, but particularly in communication disabilities where we may actually be writing for our clients themselves as well to read. So thinking about someone with DLD and, you know, perhaps even in the future, if we're not writing for them now, they may in the future want to read their reports and the documents we write about them or for them. Um, Thinking about, you know, how, you know, we're doing that. How will they understand that? And yeah. Yeah. And that brings me to my next question, which is talking about, uh, your research, which is fascinating, is about that accessibility of information. Why is it important for health professionals to consider the way that they write reports or, or any other information for that matter? Yeah, look, I think um, it's grown. We've we realised our, our, the, the importance has, has dawned on us as a profession um, over time. I think in, in the past... Um, a lot of allied health report writing and medical report writing has been, we, we wrote for other allied health professionals, we wrote for health professionals specifically. So that was the audience and that meant a particular way of writing and, you know, particular use of jargon was fine because health professionals understand or mostly understood that to some degree um, across the health professions. I think over time that has shifted. The the people that we're writing for, the audiences of our documentation has has changed over time and more and more writing reports for um, for families, for, for our clients themselves, for NDIS planners, people who don't have that health background. Um, and so shifting the way we write reports to make sure those audiences can access the information, understand the information, and then use that information. That's what's really important, I think, throughout um my clinical work you know so many times chatting with colleagues or you know just say we write these reports and they're awesome we think they're brilliant (laughs) but people just aren't using them they they do they end up in files and they just sit there and don't really get read people rarely make it to the end of a however long report we write no matter how awesome it is Mm -hmm. um so i think 
that we, we're starting to realise that why are we doing all this stuff for if no one's going to read it? What impact is it having? Is it being used? Um, but for me, most of all for me is um, there's an element of respect for our clients and the people reading our reports. Um, you know, we, we show that we are respecting um, our audiences when we write in ways that, that will help them to understand. We, when we write something that people might need to read multiple times to try and get our meaning, um, that, that just makes it difficult for them and, and creates more and more barriers to understanding that information and using it. Um, so I think we've got you know, a bit of an ethical responsibility here to, to, to make sure that, yeah, people can, can understand what we're trying to convey with our written communication. I love the thought around, um, you know, this shift. And it's not like we're saying that um, something was wrong. And, mm. you know, your, your point about, um, you know, sitting in your office and thinking, this is a really great report. <laughs> um, why isn't anybody using it really resonates with me because... Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't write these sorts of uh, uh, reports, it, it takes quite some time and a huge mm. amount of cognitive load to synthesize, mm. um, you know, assessment information or observations into something that is integrated and meaningful and, you know, considered. So I certainly, um, you know, I think, oh, if I'm going to spend all this time, I want it to be really good. Like I want it to be the best it can be. Um, yeah. So what yeah. would be some of the attributes if you, if you were looking at a really good, um, well-written, high-quality report or any other information, you know, what, what might be included or what might that look like? I guess that's the, the, there's, no, there's no easy answer to that. I always <laughs> ask the tough questions. Um. <laughs> I know, and people just want it. Just tell, tell us what to do and we'll do it. What, what is this, you know, what does this look like? Give us, people ask for templates and yep. examples and things like that. Um, it's really tricky because what I think, you know, how I want my information presented to me from my health professionals might be different to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess the key there is to, we need to ask the people who are reading our reports um, and no surprises, that's what I'm doing in my research, <laughs> um, but we need to go to the, our audiences and um, have, have a chat where we can, which is also, you know, a bit tricky, um, but to, to perhaps ask some questions about how, you know, how would you like me to write this report um, in consideration of the purpose. So having a chat upfront with people, okay, we're, you know, I'm doing this assessment or this piece of work and it, a piece of writing will come from that at the end what's the purpose it needs to achieve? Um, and if it's to obtain funding, there's probably a particular style that needs to be adopted there um, in order to make the case, make the argument to get appropriate funding for someone, um, as opposed to something that might be predominantly for a teacher or an early childhood educator to use to put in place some really functional adjustments in the environment for um, you know, a child who's learning language um, and those sorts of things. So thinking about the purposes of, of what we're writing, um, as well as talking to the people who are, are going to read it and use that information um, is really important. That, and, and the people who are reading it will be the judgment of the quality, mm. will be the judges of the quality, that, that their opinions of what we really need in terms of is this good quality um, and that's where um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way I think about report writing. Um, and this has come through in, um, I did some work for Speech Pathology Australia around an updated report writing guide in 2020. And the structure of that guide um, chunks information into, we think about the um, readers of our documents. We think about the writers of the documents ourselves. We think about the documents um, themselves, and then those three elements all happen within particular contexts. So we need to also take into consideration the context. Context might be things like working with an evidence within evidence-based practice framework, 
thinking about E4BP, um, thinking about ICF, the International Classification of Functioning, um, those sorts of contextual factors sit around the work that we do when we might be writing reports um, and that includes the purposes of writing as well. Um, but, and, but we also need to think very carefully about our readers and sometimes we know who that is and sometimes we might not and sometimes it might be multiple readers um, and that's really challenging to do, no question, that's really hard to do. Um, but in terms of the readers, one of the really important things to think about is health literacy. Um, and health literacy contains those ideas that I mentioned before about accessing information, understanding information, being able to appraise information, health information that we get and then apply it. Um, and the appraisal of health information is, is a really important one, I think. It's, it's often neglected in the research and in our day-to-day lives, but how do we look at a report and go, yep, this is good quality? and I can then use that. How do we judge the quality of that? And so collaborating a bit with our readers to, to help them kind of understand, okay, here's, here's how you can see the quality of my work. You can see, like you talked about, that, that process of synthesizing information. I've done all of this assessment and we're not just plonking it in a report and putting numbers in there and away you go. I've done this synthesis work and you can see you can track the thinking from the assessment data through to the, the statements that I've made in your report. And, and that's what makes, you know, that's what adds to the quality of this report. And having, I guess, working with our readers where we can, it's, it can be really tricky to, um, to I guess, support them to, to process and understand that so they're more likely to be able to use it. Of course, wrapped up in all of that is a person's um, skills and, and ability. So definitely communication ability is really important in, in health interactions. There's no question about that. Literacy skills, it's obviously really important, um, but also a person's motivations. Um, you know, impact on the way they engage with this sort of health information. Um, and we as health professionals or allied health professionals can function as barriers sometimes um, to, to supporting people with their health literacy, but we can also be facilitators. So we can do things that support people with that access, understand, appraise, apply process, we can facilitate that. And thinking about accessible information and trying to adopt things like plain language and all those sorts of things is us facilitating them to their health literacy and their being their ability to understand and use the information that we produce. Because mm, I find it interesting in my own observations that if I was to go to a medical specialist, say I was getting an x-ray done, you know, nobody's handing me the x-ray and asking me to interpret myself, are they? You know, mm. there, um, mm. you know, there's always that sort of follow-up to ensure clarity and understanding. <clears throat> Often in, in allied health worlds and, you know, in speech pathology in particular, sometimes the report will be, you know, emailed out to the families and there's a lot of onus on them to then interpret um, mm. and it's it's mm. one thing that I have tried to change in my clinical practice over many years is that you know not releasing content without the opportunity to explain discuss expand mm. all those sorts of things that mm. um, there are limitations in written work aren't there, that are different to oral communication where we can sit discuss and chat and all mm. those sorts of things as well Very so much. yeah that idea of co-creation of meaning is really powerful to me. We do it a lot with our, yeah, verbal communication, our oral communication. Mm. You and I, yeah, we'll do a lot of this back and forth. So we co-create the meaning. Mm. In writing, it's very one way. Mm. And we can shift that to be a little bit more co-creation. My own report writing practices have changed to be, you know, I'll, I'll synthesize and I'll write something up, but then I'll talk through that with a teacher and I'll talk through that with a parent before I just hand over this piece of writing and say, mm. These are the, this is what I've got in this piece of writing and, and make sure that's appropriate and understandable. Yeah. And I sure. think that that 
explanation adds depth opportunities for dialogue discussion but there have been times and i'm just thinking about your funding point earlier whereby i do write funding reports differently because they are often um for want of a better word a deficit model uh -huh. um, where we're trying to demonstrate a significant need in order to acquire the re required funding yep. for that person to succeed in the way that we know that they can um but it's often about having that conversation with the family and saying, hey, actually, I'm about, we're going to need to generate a report. There's a very specific style that I'm going to use for this. Uh, and more recently, for particularly, I was saying to Harmony offline earlier that I've started working increasingly with adolescents that who are literate, you know, they yep. can read, um, they may pick up this document and I will often need to explain to them, hey, I'm going to write this document yep. in a certain way. Um, but often then I've become more inclined to, particularly with those funding discussions or, you know, documents saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking of putting in, or maybe let's have a look at this part together as a part of our session and going, awesome. what do you think of this? And often the young people have what I'm looking to write. You know, they actually... I will say this often in my intervention that often the work I do with adolescents is actually them telling me what they want and me helping that facilitate that happening. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they can often have that really interesting insight into report writing as well, because yeah. as you said, and I think um, having known you now for a few years, um, one of my biggest learnings has been the fact that it's really difficult to sometimes know who's going to read your report, but you can almost always guarantee that the person that the report's about you know they're going to want to know mm, yeah about themselves maybe not now maybe it's in the yep. future um yeah, yeah yeah so thinking about that you know who are reports usually written for or you've already kind of alluded to the fact that they might mm. have multiple audiences because i know as a speech pathologist you know I, i'm writing a report it's out there then you know mm. Who are they written for? Who, you know, when might they be read by multiple people? What can we do, I guess, to sort of think mm. about that? Yeah, it's it's good to reflect on. And I think that's probably one of the key takeaway messages is the importance of reflection in this yeah. process. And do have a think about, yeah, this is who I think my audience is. And like I said, that's shifted over time. Um but also thinking about, yeah, what, what would happen if someone else picked this up and would that require some extra information? So when if we're writing for someone that we've worked closely with, a family or teachers or things like that, people like that, um, we might, I guess, have that implicit sort of familiarity where we may not describe things as fully as we may if if there's a sort of an someone an unknown audience of a report um so i guess reflecting on sort of how much information then goes in a report of course the longer the report the <laughs> the more onerous it becomes yes. to read yep yeah. uh, it's pretty hard to keep someone's attention for <sighs> more than i mean 10 pages i reckon is pushing That's it really long innings yeah 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 um but I guess offering that, I like this really, I like the idea of thinking about um, giving people, what, what's the bare minimum information? And I think um, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking to Sean, what, you know, what's, what do you, what's the, at the core of this report? What do you really need people to know? And maybe focusing on that. Mm. But then the, the idea of people who want to drill in and know more detail, giving people the option to do that. Um, and, that, uh, you know, at the risk of using a little piece of jargon, but signposting that, mm. kind of giving people hints at, okay, you know, here's the crux of this mm. report, here's what I've done, and here's the findings. Um, he, I've got more information in these sections of my report, or, you know, and that way people can sort of choose when they read what we've done, they kind of go, okay, that's enough for me. I just needed that snapshot, that summary, that's all I need. Um, people kind of go, okay, I need to know how you reach that summary. So 
pe people who are, have the responsibility of allocating funding might need to go, okay, I need to know how you came to that particular conclusion. And they can drill into that information. Um, doing that, I think, is really tricky. <laughs> um, but that's, that's at the core of a lot of stuff that I'm reading about in terms of making information accessible to people. Um, giving them ways to control how much information they access and what information that might be. And you, we see that come up a lot in on the internet, in websites. You'll see that sort of navigation supports, you know, here's the you know, key information, here's how you can find out more kind of idea. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, that's something to really interesting to reflect on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because there's going to be multiple people potentially consuming that content and knowing that people, some people want more. One parent might say to me, I actually really like reading research articles. Do you yeah. have anything more that I can read? Yeah. Versus if I gave the same research articles to every parent, some parents are going to look at me like I've got two heads and go, I'm not going to do this. You clearly haven't read the room. Um, yeah, you know. yeah, and that's where that respect comes in, isn't it? You know, yeah. being respectful to one person means, yep, here, have have this really, yeah, scientific information. Mm. And being respectful to other people is going, do you know what? Here's a little summary I found of some yeah. information or here's, here's a blog post. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Some complaints I might get from families and teachers is that they will tell me that reports are really long really complicated and we have so many people you know think talking about our audiences you know not just speech pathologists are listening in we've got people listening yeah. in from all sorts of backgrounds um what can they do you know whether it's a family member or a, a teacher an early childhood educator what can they do when they're not sure about the contents of a report if they've been given this and go oh this is onerous or this doesn't quite fit do you have any suggestions mm -hmm. for them yeah that's a really good question um, and I, I would love to hear from more families and more people who, who are, you know, receiving our reports. I'd love to hear their suggestions yep. um, more and more because there's, there's not a lot like the, the research hasn't really looked into that, um, you know, but I guess what we can do is encourage people, well, I think what every, every speech pathologist, every health professional would say, you know, I give people this and I would encourage them to ask questions yes. you know? and people say, no, 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 that's fine. And they go away. So they must understand everything that's, mm. you know, job done, I guess, finding ways to really help people feel okay about saying, I don't understand this. Mm -hmm. um, some people feel really confident to do that. Um, and other people really don't. There's, there's a power sort of, um, in the relationship that just means people feel uncomfortable mm. um, and I would encourage people to to just say look I'm, I'm not sure what you're trying to say here can mm. you can you explain it to me um, in, a, in a different way mm. um, and I guess keep asking <laughs> keep asking yeah um, I always make take the assumption that if someone doesn't understand something that I've written or something that I've said <clears throat> that's my fault and mm. I need to find a different way to explain something or work with them to, to create that understanding. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people would take that approach as well, I'm assuming. Um, but I guess, yeah, feeling, feeling like you can, that like you can ask is, is, is important. There's a, um, a really valuable strategy that's, you know, it's got a, its own website, it's got its own evidence base called um, Teachback. Um, and probably lots of people are familiar with it, but for um, people who aren't, Teachback is a strategy that health professionals, allied health professionals, anyone can use really to, um, I guess, check in with people that we're talking to, or people that we're writing to usually when we're talking to people, to check in about their understanding. So if we've just explained something about DLD, you know, this is what I did, this is the finding, this is what DLD is, this is what it means, that sort of thing. And, um, you get to a point in the conversation where you go, where you'd say to the person, look, I've just given you lots of information. I'd really like to check that I've explained it well. Would you mind telling me your understanding of what I've just told you? 
about DLD. Can you explain it back to me? And that will help me check that I've explained things well. And if I haven't done a good job on that, I'll have, you know, I'll help, we'll help to fix that and I'll explain things a little differently. Um, it can feel really awkward to do it first, um, yeah. to say to someone, I've just told you a bunch of information. Now you tell it back to me, <laughs> which is essentially what we're doing. But if you do it respectfully and just to say, I need, I need to, I'd like to check that, yeah. that you've understood things. And then that, that does put the responsibility back on us mm. to, to keep working with someone and talking with someone to make sure they go away with an accurate understanding. There is, mm. yeah, like I said, the Teachback website has lots of little videos. Mm. Um, we can link that to the podcast page for this one as well, yeah. Harmony, so we can do yeah, that. Brilliant. Yeah, the, and, mm-hmm. I was going to say there's another resource that I um, we have on our DLD project website, which is mm-hmm. questions to ask your speech pathologist. So if you're really stumped as a family member or, uh, you know, uh, educator and you're like I'm actually not sure what questions to ask um, it actually has initially like what a speech pathologist is and does and what our training is mm. um, and it, it, the, it says here you know they also want to support you and your loved one so don't be afraid to ask questions I just pulled it up as we were talking about that because I thought oh that sounds really familiar and it's because it's (laughs) and it says you know the first question is what has the initial assessment shown in my child's strengths and areas of need you know so and starting to open some of that dialogue and I think there's 10 questions from memory um, that can help sort of guide parents if you're not really quite sure um, you know there's some resources there as well because we want to be able to communicate and share and ensure that families understood because at the end of the day they're with them the most we're yeah, only there for yeah. such a small that, part of it you know that, and that, that's why we're there that's that's our job like yeah that's what we're supposed to be able to do yeah sometimes it'll be maybe you just need to say look that's just lots of information I need to go away and have a mm. think and process yep. can I come back to you and when can I come back to you yeah and and perhaps us doing a little follow-up yeah as well to to check in about yeah. things finding ways and that's what I found is that um, we've talked about some of that design and, and, and preparation. And then, you know, you know, in the previous podcast, we've talked about assessment, which is often what I think about is, you know, the assessment reports are often such an, an unwieldy beast. Um, mm. But what I will do is sort of say, you'll get this report, we'll sit down and discuss it, and then coming back to check it, but encouraging families to ask questions. Um, mm. and, and so that they can understand the, at least the assessment information and where to from here. But one of the other big changes, I've done a couple of big changes, actually, Harmony, over the last few years, one of which is um, clinically, I've actually changed my recommendation section. I used to write a recommendation section that was like war and peace. You know, it was <laughs> it was everything that I could think of that might help this young person because I was so desperate for them to have the support that they needed. And now I've actually mm. changed my um intervention structure basically in that I won't jump into my intervention without doing some goal setting and goal setting often includes talking to schools and the teachers or the early childhood setting and part of that is now you know when we go through the rec like uh when we go through the report we'll actually generate generate recommendations together Mm. and sort of say look I might have five recommendations one of which is I would like to meet with the school or the Mm -hmm. teacher because I'm in a um you know I've few roles but one of my roles is a private practitioner I'm I'm used to being in the school what the winner in my previous life was the teacher was right there you know and I just knock on the door and that little bit of distance in private practice has meant that I've had to really rethink the way in which I work and um Mm. you know rather than going please please read my long list of recommendations it's Mm. I've got the recommendations internally let's Mm. work out how it fits within your setting because this actually may not fit within the way your school does this Mm. or your school already does this Um, so how do we map this into your existing setting and it's been a really interesting shift from having that teacher right there with me to Mm. I need to have this little extra step but it's meant that I've changed my recommendations because teachers were saying do we do all of it that doesn't work in my classroom or that doesn't work in for this child in this space what can we do and um, it's really by listening taking on their feedback that's made me go hmm I'm gonna do this differently and it's really you know my recommendations can be five to eight points and that's it now which which some speeches are like oh how can you possibly I'm like well it's it's actually putting the onus on more communication at the end of the day and saying let's work it out together 
Um, I guess you're you're thinking there multimodally as well. Yeah. You're thinking about different ways to convey the same information. Mm. Um, there's there's different ways we can do it, and mm. yet writing it all down somewhere is one way. Mm. Um, I guess the other question is, yeah, does that have to go in the report? You know, mm. if, if you feel compelled to write it down, can there be a separate? You know, here's things you you know the things to do yeah and maybe chunk it um yeah. chunking information really helps people to understand and apply um information so kind of going you know here's some things you can do right now probably and here's some things to think about for later that might take a bit more thinking and yeah there's there's lots of different ways um mm. that that we can convey information yeah. um and thinking about yeah, applying some of that a bit creatively. Of course, the, the barrier there can be time for mm. us. You know, clinicians often talk about the, the time, and you've already talked about the time it takes to construct a report, let alone doing the assessment, synthesising the information and writing mm -hmm. things up. Um, you know, time is is really tricky thing to, to, to manage, and I guess that's where the context comes into play you know how much time have we realistically got to do these things um and that's appropriate that's that's a, a really realistic Important barrier. consideration yeah what is the most efficient way um and maybe writing it all down seems efficient initially but if nobody's going to actually apply that information in reality that time probably was better spent doing something different different yeah. Yeah. So thinking about the cost benefit kind of stuff mm -hmm. when we do this could be yeah. really valuable. Um, and that's where people start to, to think about and talk about templates. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very context specific as well. Um, you've got to think about, you know, if you are doing reports for the same purposes over and over again and you're churning them out, you know, a template is, is often going to save you time. But if you're doing some really individualized work with people in different settings across different ages. Like you're starting to work across the lifespan. The work you do with the 20 something year old is going to look different to the 14 year old. Mm -hmm. It's going to be pretty individual. Um, and having the time to do that would be awesome. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but also thinking, you know, a template probably isn't going to, you know, cut it. I guess, yep. across those different purposes and different audiences, yep. unfortunately. But, you know, maybe there's some other strategies out there. I do not claim to be the expert on all things report writing. I do want to make that really clear. <laughs> I'm just a chick who goes around asking people why, what they do and yep. why they do it and, you know, what, what they've changed and why yep. they've changed it and yep. stuff like that. I find it really um, valuable to keep... Yeah learning about that sort of stuff so if there's yeah. people out there if there's families out there who've who've had you know speeches or health professionals do some really awesome stuff oh gosh that would be lovely to know about mm. you know um we need that kind of knowledge actually one big change that i i think um i haven't mentioned yet that i i'm remiss in mentioning is when thinking about the um report audiences one of the things that i have introduced recently by recently, probably the last few years, is um, a recommendation or, or a reference to a um, helpline in my reports. And that's been something mm. that has been, had very mixed opinions, but something that I have always, like we've included in research, you know, if you're researching and working with adolescents or vulnerable people, we say, you know, if this information makes mm. you feel uncomfortable, you know, seek support and whatever that might be um, and so when I'm writing for adolescents I'll often for in Australia we'd include something like the kids helpline or um, lifeline or some some service that actually can provide that immediate on the spot sort of counseling or advice around and, and it's, it's it's actually just listening to their concerns mm, um, yeah. that they may not be seeing you for a fortnight you know, or mm. they've only seen you today and then they got the report. And mm. um, it's caused a little bit of controversy. Some people think, oh, it's very presumptuous of you to think that they're going to have mental health needs right. around your report. But I said, I'm, and I share this openly, you know, I'm a, a person who's gone through, you know, lots of health treatment. I mean, I did multiple rounds of IVF for our daughters, which are amazing, but... Mm you know, there is mm. some invasiveness around health, working with health professionals, and you can't presume that everybody's walking in with a calm 
you know, mm. easygoing demeanour. And mm. I'd actually prefer people to know that they can seek counselling and support because maybe they do read something that's distressing to them. You didn't intend to upset them. That's mm. not what a health professional does. But mm. sometimes when you read those descriptors on an assessment report, um, which mm. I use less and less as the years go by, um, because it's sometimes hard to be told that your child has a severe difficulty mm. with something or that they are less than one percentile below the average range and that mm. evokes emotions so um, mm. it's something yeah. that I, I I do include quite frequently in when I think it's appropriate um, mm. because maybe my 13 year old's going to pick it up at 18 um, and read it then and so maybe that's the time that they need that information as well um, yeah. and it's something I that I've pulled can. through from research world but yeah something slightly yeah. different I, I like that yeah I, ha I haven't heard anyone else say that they do that there you go something different trailblazer sean um, oh uh, yeah no I, I think that's something to to think about and reflect on i i think that's appropriate to think about yeah what what supports are out there if people mm. do yeah need some some support not from us mm. um you know if they need someone else to talk yeah. through stuff so but, i'm not a mental health professional you know yeah. i do a lot of guidance and counseling when i can mm. where it's appropriate in the context but I'm not a mental health specialist and well and you're also the one who made the diagnosis yeah of course and i am so that's you know your position it's yeah. appropriate for people who if they need support to to find that some yeah. someplace else yeah and letting people know how they can do that so thinking about um you know we've talked a lot about the report um but what next is it just something that we're going to sit you know on our computer or it lives in a printed folder i know many families tell me they've got a you know, dedicated folder for all of their child's reports and information, but then it kind of just sits there. What mm. next? What do we? What do we do? Well, yeah, that's that's the, the good question. <laughs> what, <laughs> what do we do? do? All of this. Yeah. What What is the purpose of of all this writing? I suppose. And yeah, I I oh, many years ago now, in uh, a very different workplace I worked in, we did a, a big sort of project supporting families to to actually make those folders to keep mm. yeah <laughs> keep it all together mm. yeah and to have different folders for different purposes and so that you know you can access it so that you know if, if someone was going from primary school to high school you had mm -hmm. the information there or leaving school and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. I suppose um yeah I, I guess that's where personally I think the the hearing from people who have collected this information, the, the you know, people that we're writing for and about um, can help us understand that that part of the a puzzle a bit better. Mm. You know, this collection of, of things that are about me as a person, mm. you know, what what value is there in all of that and how how does it portray me mm. i had someone i was talking to someone recently who told me that all the written um information is is like a painting mm. um of them as a person but it's not it's not complete mm. it's it's sort of it's not even an impressionist painting mm. perhaps you know it's um taking that idea a bit further you know thinking about yeah what what kind of a picture are we painting of someone, um, you know, and then reflecting on, you know, sometimes it's not accurate and that's on purpose, you know, yeah. like you talked about the deficit yeah. model, having to focus on a certain aspect of, of someone in one particular Neat. piece of writing. Um, but then thinking about what that means for that person and mm. how they then reflect on all of that and how it impacts on their understanding of themselves, I suppose. Mm. Um, Someone has talked to me about, yeah, sort of looking back historically through pieces of writing that their health professionals have given them and, yeah, going through a bit of a learning process about themselves from learning about their yeah. past. Yeah. Yeah. Or even um, I, I hear the term label collectors. You know, oh, right. You know, like um, that. I, I use this example in one of my workshops around comorbidities, but it was an example given to me by a parent. I should credit them that they actually went to four different health professionals, and I was the fourth health professional that they saw, and they got a label from each different one 
all in quick succession. So they got a diagnosis of auditory processing disorder. They got a diagnosis of dyslexia from the educational psychologist, got the diagnosis of ADHD um, from the um, uh, pediatrician. And they came to see me last because the pediatrician said, I think you need to see a speech pathologist, came and saw me. And she said, you've just given me a diagnosis of DLD. Which one's the right one? <laughs> oh and I was my like, goodness. well, actually, they could all be right. And let me explain how they all kind of fit together. Mm. Um, but mm. it's actually sometimes by accessing all the old reports that we could start to go, right, this is how this picture starts to build. Or, yeah. uh, you know, I'm working with a, a young man at the moment who I suspect has a language disorder or DLD that we've been able to go right back to, as it turns out, they'd seen a speech pathologist at three through five, hadn't had any speech pathology now until senior secondary school and go, mm -hmm. okay, did you have this condition all along and it mm -hmm. just wasn't diagnosed and then therefore supported mm -hmm. or is something, what else is at play here? And so those reports have been incredibly helpful for mm -hmm. me to go, actually, here is your, you know, um, self yeah. results your clinical evaluation of language fundamentals results and go ah oh, okay there's something yeah. here and that's why you were seeing the speech pathologist so it may be 10 years down the track but it's been you know the mother yeah. has held it in that file that whole time wow um and been incredibly helpful for decision making um yeah 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 and so guess, it's been yeah. mm. thinking about that that the reports you're writing now in 10 years time mm. you know or, yeah however in in the future how far in the future oh i yeah. dread that they'd find a mistake <laughs> <laughs> they're bound to have, i'm not i'm only yeah. human but yeah it's just yeah, yeah. Interesting no, we are see. we are only human and yeah we're trying to do these things in, in with the best possible intent and best yeah. possible knowledge and i think ha having an approach of well we do this what well, we do what we do now for this yeah. reason yeah. and then Sometime in the future, we'll we might do something different for this reason, and yep. that's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've kind of already answered this next question, but I'm going to ask it in case you'd like to reflect and add anything to it. Which is, do you have any advice for families who are reading reports from health professionals? I think we've we've touched on it, but do you have anything else you want to add? Um, I guess. Um, yeah, I probably covered it a lot of it, but I guess we value feedback. Mm. Um, and one of, you know, one of the pieces of advice for the writers is to seek feedback. So I mm. guess for families, I would say, give feedback, tell people, you know, if they're willing to hear your feedback, <laughs> this is what I liked about what you wrote here. I understood mm. this bit really well. Yeah. Um, you know, start with the positives. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I this is the bit that I struggled to understand, and you know that that shapes what we do as mm. as health professionals, as speech pathologists. We need to know what we're doing that's worthwhile, mm. and that we can keep doing and doing more of, and what things are not so helpful. Mm. In and you know, you might just families might think oh that's just my opinion and mm. it might not be the same as anyone else's but your opinion is valuable mm. to 100%. us yeah we really need to hear more um voices from our clients and our families and the teachers to be able to guide what we do because the evidence base is is not strong mm. around this report writing stuff um and having the voices of, of people reading the reports and particularly families and clients mm -hmm. helps us to do better. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Mm. So in your opinion, Harmony, we're just, we're coming to, you know, we're moving towards the end of today's podcast, uh, but what would you hope to see in the future for DLD, either in research or clinical practice or, or service delivery models? What would you love to see in the future? I think what I'm already seeing is a shift towards lots of that lovely reflection, mm. um, people questioning <laughs> what they do and why they do it. So, yeah, I guess um, moving more towards questioning what we do and why we do it, listening more to, um, to our readers, our clients and our families, um, giving people, our readers, um, permission and encouraging people to to question what we do and um, give us feedback, all those sorts of things. Um, 
I think is is all really valuable. I think some some more research obviously is um would be really would be helpful yep and i'm trying to uh to contribute to that um evidence base um and i'll get there eventually um <laughs> but i guess that stance that we've already talked about about you know we don't necessarily know that we're doing the exact right thing right now with our report writing and all our documentation and we're open to doing things better being open as a as a profession to improving what we do one of the other things that it can be really valuable but is also really hard to do is peer review so seeking feedback from clients and families is one thing that we can do um, the other thing is asking our colleagues um, for to to read our writing and asking for their feedback as well Yep. can be really valuable that can be tricky to yep. do in some workplaces and sometimes makes you feel a bit vulnerable as well yep <laughs> yep there is that vulnerability there yep. um but that's you know that's one of the things that the evidence base does talk about you know mm. getting feedback from various places about what we do helps us to do things better yep. and as a general rule that you know applies to many things yep. um but yeah definitely so in report writing the the challenge is that you know we we are presenting ourselves as a professional you know there's a lot of ethical responsibility there's a lot of you know responsibility on us when we put our words onto paper they're there like we said for years and years people pick it up in the future and might judge us as a professional um and so and and i think you know we we do feel that that heavily that that burden but i think that needs to prompt us to be more open more vulnerable i suppose yeah. um and take that stance of yeah look okay that that might not have been the best way to do it thank you for your feedback i'll do it better next time you know and that's that's a strength i think as a clinician um to be able to take that on board not take it to mean god i'm crap at my job <laughs> i can't be a speech pathologist anymore yeah. um you know we've all had those feelings yeah yeah we are communication professionals but we're not we don't have to be the perfect communicators we are only human mm. and and yeah we have diff we have other ways as as speech pathologists to be able to you know kind of go yep let's learn to communicate better cool mm -hmm. <laughs> um but that that you know that takes time and resilience um all those sorts of things to do yeah. um but ultimately the end goal is here is that people who need information from us get access to it understand it praise it judge whether it's good quality mm -hmm. and then use it um you know that's our end goal and if we mm. keep that in sight and we collaborate with people to say, here's the end goal, we need to use this information to achieve whatever purpose, mm. then, you know, put put our ego aside, I guess, for, mm. you know, one of a, a better term, but, you know, trying not to, it's a, trying not to take things too personally, but it is yeah. a, a bit, the way you write things is quite personal. Um, yeah. You know, and I guess um, one of the really interesting conversations that comes up around the place, particularly in report writing, um, is about whether we can use the, the word I in our reports uh -huh. in, in talking about ourselves. Lots of times in the past, people have, have used the clinician or mm. the speech pathologist when they're actually referring to themselves. Um, or they use passive voice. And assessment was conducted mm. on such and such a date well, okay, did you do that assessment? Um, and historically, we've shied away from going, I did the assessment on this date using mm. this tool. Um, and people have very strong opinions about, oh, I couldn't possibly say I um, mm. and you in reports. Um, I love it. It, mm. helps, it helps writing be a lot clearer. But that's one of those things that people, you know, get a little bit hung up on. Will I look less professional? Mm. if i say i did an assessment 
with this person on this date, as opposed to that assessment was conducted by the speech pathologist on such and such. Yeah, you know, there's there's mm. different tone there um, that might be one might be judged to be more professional than another. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, think that being more direct is helps people understand things better. Mm. Um, and conveys that respect, I suppose. Uh, it's clearer, you can understand it easier. We mm. know that, yeah, passive, lots of passive language, um, and that does turn up in a lot of reports, the evidence-based. Absolutely, I that. use it all the time. It's, yep. yep. No, exactly <laughs> passive, what you're talking about, Harmony. <laughs> passive voice was used by the yes. speech pathologist. <laughs> to write their report. Yes, no, I, I'm reflecting as you're talking, thinking that, I do perceive that as professional and mm. why do I perceive that as professional and, you know, was that part of my training and, or is it for, because I've observed others using it? It's mm -hmm. a really interesting observation. Oh, I feel a mm. bit conflicted, Harmony. I don't know how, I, I don't know how I feel go. about that. Have, have a, have a, I'll leave you some time to have a think mm. about that, Sean. Come back yeah. to me a little later. I'll need but to think. That's one of the principles of, principles of plain language mm. is write in the first person use active voice and not passive voice and it's you know yeah um yeah but sometimes it you know sometimes we can use passive voice as a, as a very deliberate tool to soften mm -hmm. some things mm -hmm. um you know think about the bill was not paid as opposed to you did not pay the bill yes <laughs> different One tone. sounds a bit more accusatory yes um, and depending on your purpose <laughs> Yes. One or the other. Maybe you want them to pay um, the bill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes you might choose specifically to use passive voice for a particular yeah. purpose. Um, but more often, uh, our, our meaning is much clearer. And there's lots of resources out there around plain language yeah. and plain writing. Um, mm -hmm. But the, yeah, that reflection on how, how plain do you go? Mm. Um, you know, in the Speech Pathology Australia guide, we talked about, you know, using plain language, but maintaining professional tone mm. is important. Yep. Um, and how you do get that balance. Mm. It can be really tricky, but yep. yeah, it'd be, it's good to work towards and have a think about how we do that. Mm. Mm. Great. So we are coming to a close, Harmony. Mm -hmm. And I have one more question before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. At the DLD project, we are focused, and it's great because we're focusing on this in the new year, <laughs> focus mm -hmm. on self-care and finding a little bit of time to breathe in our busy day. Um, you are a very busy researcher and clinician. Uh, you're studying part-time and working full-time. Mm. What do you do to look after yourself? I dig in the garden. I love that. That is my secret. I love to rip out plants mm -hmm. that aren't meant to be there. Mm -hmm. I love to dig holes, hopefully for a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and the house I'm, I'm in now, has, the garden was a bit neglected. It's just mm -hmm. fantastic. Got in there with, you know, power tools, cutting down branches, mm -hmm. you know, really physical stuff. We spend yeah. a lot of time at desks, to be honest. So. Yes, we do doing something that is so intense and you that's all you could focus on is is what I really love um you know you just have to you know when you're digging a hole at at my age there is a bit of a risk Come when now, you're doing some, some pretty physical stuff so I have to you know pay attention so I don't wreck my back or yes. whatever mm -hmm. um so you can't think about all the other stuff just for that mm -hmm. window of time it's just all dig digging in the dirt. Mm. It all pays off. I have to say 2020, end of 2019, beginning of 2020 was my digging lots of holes period. And um, I now have a uh, cottage garden that most people wouldn't think you could have in Queensland um, because we are in the subtropics. But I had the most amazing array of hydrangeas um, that you wouldn't think Brisbane would be able to muster, but we did. Um, I had about... I have four different varieties and I had about 40 to 50 blooms on two-year-old plants. I was very impressed with my, uh, you know, wow. digging of digging of soil a couple of that years is, ago. That is very impressive. I know, for, uh, for very, Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
uh, and I've, we've put in some more uh, star jasmine and all sorts of things. So we should hopefully have some nice fragrant, um, you know, climbing flowers to go with the uh, the beautiful oh, cottage garden. That, so that sensory stuff is mm. so good for us. All along the uh, kids' bedroom side of the house, so it should be nice with the uh, rest of my hydrangeas. So I've got oh. a, a bit of a collection going at the moment. <laughs> Yes, that's awesome. I'm still in, uh, you know, it's a, it's a new garden that I'm working on. I'm mm. still on the cut it down, rip it out phase. I like that too. That's I'm good. trying to embrace that. I'm trying to resist the urge to plant stuff. just Until, it, yeah, I ripped out my whole front yard in 2020 and um, it was very relaxing to be able to uh, then build it up from scratch. So enjoy the um, dismantling stage. Brilliant. Now, to recap... What would be your key points that you'd like listeners to take away from our chat today? Yeah, that's really tricky <laughs> to condense <laughs> all of this lovely discussion um, down into some key points. But I think the, the things that stand out um, are thinking, taking that framework of the readers, the writers, the documents and the context, thinking about those elements um, of what we're doing of, of the whole situation here, thinking about that. Um, and then that, that flows through to thinking about what makes our reports and any of our documents, what makes them truly accessible? What makes the information accessible? What makes, what, you know, what's likely, what can we do to help people to be more likely to understand and use um, the documents we can do that by reflecting on ourselves as writers, um, collaborating or learning from the people who read the reports um, and, and doing all of that in the context that we work in. Um, thinking a lot about having a focus on, on our readers. I think we can, that importance that we talked about around pe people asking us questions and giving us feedback when we do these pieces of work. I think um, you know, giving our clients and families and teachers and everyone permission to tell us what they think mm. about our reports, yep. be brave, um, and and ask people what they like first mm -hmm. <laughs> about the reports, um, but also you know what what could make it even better. Yeah. Um, take, taking that approach and for families and, and our clients to definitely do that, you know, if, if the, you know, if your clinician isn't necessarily asking that openly, mm -hmm. be brave and say, can I give you some, you know, feedback on this or yeah, offer that sort of information that will, that will help us to grow. Like we were talking about before, because we do need more research on this topic, we do need a stronger research evidence base to guide um, these practices, but we also need to hear from clinicians, uh, for clients, families, people um, that we're working with and working for. You know, we need to hear those valuable, um, you know, gems and reflections from people to to help us do what we do better. Um, and hopefully, yeah, we can we can build the evidence base over time um, through research, um, which is specifically what I'm hoping to do. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how people can be involved in your research, Harmony? Thank you, Sean. I was, feeling, <laughs> I was struggling to find <laughs> I'll in, the words. To I'll do invite that. you to share because we want more research in this space and you're doing it. How can people get involved? <laughs> That would be awesome if there was people who were interested in contributing to the evidence base. My research is um, actually at the moment, it's specifically focused on adults mm -hmm. who have communication disability. Um, and you can find out more about that on my blog, harmonyturnbull.org, I believe my blog is. I should know that. Off the <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the podcast list. It's all good. Awesome. Um, yeah, because of my background working with people with lifelong disability and communication disability, that's um, where my research is starting. Um, and I'm really keen to hear from adults with communication disability. I'm keen to talk to them about 
the reports and other written documents that they get not just from speech pathologists but from any allied health professionals so you know i'm talking to people about psychologists and physiotherapists and even genetic counselors and maybe their podiatrists um, you know anyone who's given them written pieces of information i'm really keen to hear what they think um, and get that starting to get that documented in um, in our research and in our evidence base to guide what we do awesome that thank sounds you. fantastic well we'll leave it there harmony thank you so much for agreeing to be one of our guests on the talking dld podcast and i'm so excited about sharing this content with everyone thanks again thanks john thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the talking dld podcast we highly recommend that you also tune into our language assessments episode with Nat Monroe and Marlene Westerfeld. If you'd like to expand your understanding of DLD, be sure to check out our live and on-demand workshops at thedldproject.com. Thanks for listening.